right, welcome to uh, Ego Check, our uh, interview series on gaming and psychology. I'm joined here today by Mike Shea, better known as perhaps in the online role-playing game world as Sly Flourish. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. I, I, I love that I'm on a show called Ego Check because I, I, I could use that. Yes, we just need to beat any kind of confidence out of yes, you. Yes, please. Whole, whole Good point. luck. Yes. Good luck with that. My wife would be very pleased. Wonderful. Yeah. So for those of uh, listeners who are maybe not familiar with Mike Shea or Sly Flourish, I wonder just if you could tell us who you are and how you're involved in the role-playing game world. Um, so I'm the, uh, writer for the website Sly Flourish and the Twitter feed Sly Flourish, twitter.com slash Sly Flourish. Uh, I'm the author of the Lazy Dungeon Master, um, a book that's gotten a decent amount of attention and a freelance, uh, writer for a bunch of different RPG companies, uh, including Wizards of the Coast and Pelgrane Press, Kobold, Kobold Press, um, Sasquatch and a couple of others. Uh, I've done a couple of D&D Adventures League games, uh, wrote a couple of the adventures for that. And I've been playing D&D on and off for 25-ish years, and, uh, but really steadily playing D&D over about the past 10, including a decent part of the 3.5 generation, uh, all of 4E, a little touch of Pathfinder, and now 5E. Uh, along with a bunch of other games. So, yeah, and I love just writing about it all the time. One of the things I'm curious about is being so involved in role-playing games as very much a player and as a fan, but also delving into more of the professional side, publishing and getting involved with different companies. What's that like to be in both worlds? It's weird. Uh, so actually, the only time that like I became really sort of conscious of the the different feelings is when I go to gaming conventions. And, you know, I've been going to Gen Con. My wife and I have been going to Gen Con for about eight years. This year was the first year we didn't go to Gen Con, mostly because the hotel registration is such a pain in the ass. But we've been going for quite a while. And I remember early on, I'd go to Gen Con as just a player and, you know, just a player, right? Sure. And go and play games. And I didn't really know a lot of people. And I'd kind of meet a couple people and I'd be like, hey, that guy over there, is that Dave Chalker? I think I've seen him online, <laughs> right? Sure. And, and, you know, throughout the year I'd meet him and then, you know, I'd get involved in other stuff and it, it would escalate to the point where like, I was like, yeah, I can't play any games. I've got this freelance seminar that I've got to go to. And, you know, I've got this meeting with, uh, you know, Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford, where I got to go talk about stuff. And I remember like, it, it was this sort of odd feeling of like, kind of being sort of half in and half out because, you know, you're not really a pro, like, you know, there's not a lot of pros in this industry. You know, I, I have a full-time job and, um, I could certainly not make a living off of the, the money that I get from any of the work that I've done. So you're not really on the inside, you know, you don't work for Watsy and you don't, you're not inside the fold on all of the stuff that's going on. You're, you're, you're a writer for them. But at the same time, you're also not kind of just waiting in line, playing, playing games and not really, involved in it so you it's it's actually not a great feeling being there okay um i didn't really and and i i became much happier and the, the other part was like you'd also go on twitter while i was at the gaming convention and i'd see all of these other people that i knew that are all off doing things together and i'm somewhere else and uh yeah i joked with michelle this year that like this time i won't worry about that because i know i can't be with them okay. you know 
um, where last time I was like, oh, you know, there's this great game with all like these five awesome people, but I'm not one of them. And instead I'm playing this other game over here and I didn't feel good about the game I was in when the reality is it's just as good. You know, the game I was in was fantastic and, and I didn't have to worry about that. But so in the more recent Gen Cons, I've kind of let go of worrying about trying to meet all of the, you know, the big names and, and trying to, you know, glad hand with all the people and just go and enjoy myself and play lots of games. I overbook my schedules and I go and I play a ton and I've become much happier about it. I'm much happier being just a fan. Yeah, again, I keep saying stuff like just a fan. You know, the fans are the, the you know, that's the real, that's just, the back- a, just a player, just, just a, a fan. Just a meager player, but the players are the real people, right? And everything else is sort of like, we're all at least in my case, kind of pretending, you know, with the rest of it. And it's interesting. It relates to something. I tweeted about this a few days ago. I saw another person kind of write something that I really identified with where they were talking about this conundrum that they have of playing a game that they enjoy versus creating content for a game they enjoy. Like you, like you're writing adventures, you're writing articles for DMs, you're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of advice, but you also just like to play the game. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we only have so much time throughout mm-hmm. the week, especially those of us who we don't do this professionally, it's it's our hobby. Mm-hmm. So how do you decide, okay, tonight I'm going to work on my game or I'm going to play a game or I'm going to work on an article for some mm-hmm. advice for DMs? Mm-hmm. How do you make that distinction and know when it's when you're too much in one realm or the other? That's a good question, and and I think uh, you know different people handle it in different ways. One of the one of the things that I've I've sort of made a, a you know sort of an unofficial rule and, and and but solidified it is that the games that I run are paramount to everything else mm-hmm. when it comes to the hobby itself. Uh, I have never canceled a game because I was busy with something you know with D and D. Other than that, like I wasn't strapped for an adventure. Like, I've got to finish this, you know, rough draft of this thing, and I'm going to have to cancel my game because I can't think about running a game and writing this adventure. Mm-hmm. Part of that is, and, and you know, th- this sounds like self-congratulatory, you know, <laughs> BS, but I, I, I'm pretty good at managing my time. And uh, it's rare, really rare for me to be, like, scraping on a deadline. I'm usually done early. I usually have plenty of time to sort of review things, and I and I'm... I've run a pretty rigid schedule for like, okay, it's Tuesday. Tuesday is my day to write Sly Flourish articles. Thursday is my day to write DM tips. Monday is my day to get prepared for my Wednesday game. And Friday is my day to get prepared for my Sunday game. So I'm, yes. I'm, I'm so sort of regimented throughout the week that uh, I never find myself in a situation where I have to step away from running my D&D game in order to write about D&D. Because to me, if I'm not playing D&D, if I'm not, if I'm not running a game, I can't do any of the other stuff. I'll lose it, right? I'll, I'll I'll lose the connection with what we I ought to be doing. Like all of my Sly Flourish articles come from experiences I've had running games and ideas that I've had running games. Um, the DM tips I actually write my DM tips for on Twitter. I do I, I I write once a week and I write seven of them and I schedule them so that a month out they'll come out each day. Mm-hmm. And I always do that the day after a game because I can almost always find all of those seven tips from things that happened in the game the night before. And there's no way I would have been able to do that if I wasn't playing it. Right. So for me, like playing the game is paramount. And then, you know, the other stuff is sort of secondary. And there's certainly times where I'm, you know, super busy with other stuff. But so far, uh, I haven't had to sacrifice actually running the game. The other, you know, the other thing you bring up, which I think is, is certainly, I've heard it in other things. Like if you become a, somebody who works on movies, you can't watch a movie the same way. Or if you're an, if you're an author, sure. you know, if you become a, a really good writer, you can't read books the same way. You, you start to pick them apart. 
Uh, and I've seen this with games too. Like if you become a game designer, then when you play a game, you see all the holes in the game instead of just enjoying the game for the game's sake. Mm-hmm. That may be true for other folks. That hasn't been true for me with D&D because every game is so different that I've never really, I've certainly uh, played in D&D games where I'm kind of like analyzing stuff, but I, that's never, usually it's like, it, that's only if the game has become boring anyway. And I would be just as bored whether or not I was super into D&D or whether I, I was just kind of playing. And that's, and, and, and one of the exercises that I do, I think it was uh, Truman Capote, like uh, there was an interview with Truman Capote where somebody said like, how, how do you interview somebody who's just really, really boring? And he said like, <laughs> I'll sit and analyze them and figure out why they're so boring. And I'll ask myself, like, what is it about this person that's boring me so much? You know, and I'll, and I'll start to focus down on that. And I'll do that in D&D games. I'll have some that are fantastic and I'll have some that aren't so great. And all of them become fodder for future Sly Flourish articles or DM tips or anything else. And It's like a different part of your brain is engaged to not yeah. only be as a player, but yeah. what could I learn from this? Or how why am I, I not? Yeah. Why am I not enjoying this as much? Right. Yeah. How could I become more engaged here? And then that right. becomes an article. Yeah, I, I sure. haven't really. Yeah, I haven't turned it around too much into how come I'm not. Yeah, like how come I'm not as engaged as I should be? And what could I do to get better engaged? I'm actually a terrible player. I get very distracted. <laughs> I'm the first guy on the phone. You know, I'm just it's it's really hard, which is why DMing for me is is a much greater joy. There is no way I can be distracted from DMing. It's just too much to do. There's so much going on. Yeah. Sure. And you were talking a, a few minutes ago when you mentioned that in in all modesty that you have good time <laughs> management skills i think so I, have, I would argue that as well i've you know just from following you on twitter and kind of meeting you once at gen con back in 2012 you know you've you've even shared some things pretty openly with how you manage your time i think you have an app or something that you track it with and you've published an analysis yeah. of here's what i was doing the last month and yeah. how much as a data is- as a data nerd friend i'm pretty sure i sent them to you Yes. Hey, and what can so, you make from this? And I was blown away by that because <laughs> I think I'm fairly organized, but nowhere near the stringent kind of monitoring that, that you do where, and you know that, you know, Tuesday night you're doing this, Wednesday night you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm really Im- impressed by that and just wonder why, well, kind of two questions. One, why is that so important? And two, how does that make you a better DM, do you think? Hmm. Interesting. Well, so I, I, I can't speak for anybody else about why it would be important in general. You know, I, I, not, to, not to get into productivity nerd territory, which, <laughs> you know, could be a whole other podcast on its own. But I, 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 I have a system that I've used for now for like 10 years that I used because I had to because I was in a part of my life where I had so much going on at one point that I was either going to go absolutely crazy or I was going to manage it. And I decided I'll, I'll go with the latter and, and came up with a system to manage it. And the whole the whole purpose of the system was to not have to worry about stuff. You know, it had nothing to do with getting more done. It had nothing to do with trying to be, quote unquote, more productive and it had everything to do with making sure that at any moment in time, I felt like all, you know, my shit's handled. You know, all of the loose threads are handled currently. I don't have anything that's missing. I don't have some, you know, landmine in the back of my head that's going to go off going, oh, my God, I totally forgot to do this thing with the dog, you know, or <laughs> oh, my God, the roof. Oh, I forgot about the roof, you know. So it's all about kind of reducing stress and anxiety. Yeah, right. And and it's not through, it's not through like magical, you know, sort of anything crazy as much as it's about, you know, a lot of it is forward procrastination, you know, that I procrastinate, but I do it at the beginning instead of at the end. The advantage of procrastinating in the beginning is I spend very little time 
worrying about getting something done. I just get it done, and that way I feel better. So it's actually sort of laziness up front. Um, and actually, that kind of leads to the, the idea of the lazy dungeon master. The second, the second question right. is how it matters for a DM. It, it's you know, I haven't really thought about that much. Like I've never done sort of a, a real interconnection about personal organization and DMing, other than like the lazy dungeon master, which does lay out a pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, what's the bare minimum you need? And I, I think it's actually I've never really put the two together until now, but mm-hmm. it's the same idea, which is you should have enough preparation done to not be worried about your game. And that should be about where you stop. <laughs> right? okay. like, you know, you, I mean, I'm saying like you should, but everybody's got different ways that they do it. And it's the way that's worked for me. And, and that's the way I wrote in that book. And if people, if it resonates, that's great. But, um, you know, for me, it works out that as long as I, if, if, if I do enough that I feel like I've, I've got a handle on it, I feel good. And when I, and when I'm able to start a game feeling like I'm, I'm good, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing better when it comes to running a game. And most of the time I do, you know, yeah, and about a lot of work. And a lot of your articles and uh, tips for DM, uh, the lazy dungeon master being one of them is kind of focused on the idea of preparation. What do, what do or should or could DMs be doing to prepare for a very positive gaming session? Mm-hmm. And every DM, that means something a little bit different. For some people, it's creating elaborate worlds or relying on published adventures. Mm-hmm. Other DMs might just kind of go in and be like, okay, I have a few ideas and we'll just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And to other people, going in un- unprepared, quote unquote, Mm-hmm. like causes panic attacks. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I know when I first got back into DMing years ago, I probably went too far in the one direction of I prepared way too much. I think we all did. Yeah, I did and, too. I prepared like crazy. And I'd have like things written down in notebooks or I was using a program at the time, software yep. to plot out, okay, if the party makes this decision, then this will happen. And if right. they go this way, and of course they decide something that I never anticipated. Yeah, right. The big pathway, right just totally pulling things out. Yeah. I'm curious, one, one of the articles that you're working on now that you shared with me mm-hmm. is this idea of mindfulness, which is a topic mm-hmm. we're gonna kind of get into quite a bit here, mm-hmm. but kind of thinking about D&D away from gaming sessions mm-hmm. and that almost equating to playing D&D. Mm-hmm. And curious how that relates to preparation in your mind. So mm-hmm. if you could uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So uh, this kind of came about with Monty Cook's new Kickstarter. He's doing a Kickstarter right now for a game called Invisible Sun. And it's, you know, a pretty wild new game system where he designed three. I'm, I'm learning more about it. It was like I only needed to hear about six words out of his mouth before it got me off on this tangent to think about this stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, but I've been learning more about it over this week. And, and I think he been, has that effect on a lot of people. Yeah, right. He'll like say it, it literally was like it was a seminar at Gen Con and I just started listening to part of it. And as soon as I heard that part of it, I was like, of course, like it opened my eyes to it. And and some of it is obvious. You know, some of it is like what he said was he, he referred to a time where he and uh, Bruce Cordell, when they were childhood friends, used to play D&D and they'd be walking home from school talking about D&D and talking about what their characters were doing and talking about what they're, you know, what would go on. And, and I don't know if it was then or if it's now where he realized that that's us playing D&D. You know, that that's we, we think of it like it's not D&D, that D&D is when we're all sitting around a table moving miniatures and rolling dice. But two people having a conversation about what their character is doing can, you know, who's anyone to tell us that that's not D&D? If we think about it like it is, if we say, well, that's as much D&D as sitting around the table, it kind of 
opens up our view about what D&D is and what matters to the game. And I, I did sort of a couple of experiments. These, this past couple of weeks, because of some other matters, we weren't able to play our normal. We had two sessions that we couldn't play. So two, you know, we put, normally play weekly and we had two weeks off. And it was right around these two weeks when I, I, I listened to the thing that Monty Cook talked about at, at Gen Con. And so my wife and I were just having a walk. And I said something like, so Berengar is the name of her character. And I said, so what's, you okay. know, what's, what's Berengar up to right now? You guys just were playing Curse of Strahd, the adventure, and spoilers, a little bit of, no, nah, there's not much spoilers because it says our game is totally off the rails anyway. But <laughs> they always uh, tend to do they that. They always, oh, and I love it. You know, like, but I, I'm, I'm running two different Curse of Strahd games, and both of them are totally separate directions, and I'm loving both of them. Like, you know, it's really great to, to, to have it. But they just finished like a big event at Argenfosthold, which is this big castle. And I said, so now that you guys have finished Argenfosthold, what's Berengar up to? And, and she said, well, I think Berengar is going to, you know, probably turn into a wolf and scout around the area, you know, kind of see what's going on. And I said, ah, OK, so while you're while you're scouting around as a wolf, one of the things you notice is Strahd's wolves are all around there. And every time the, the wolves are all traveling around, but they never go south. They only travel east, west and north. And at one occasion, you see a wolf that's kind of standing on a rock and it's sniffing at the air and it's looking to the south, to the storm-covered lands of Mount Gracchus. And it, it whines a little bit and kind of tucks its tail and turns and runs to the north, you know? And she's like, oh, that's interesting. So, and, and I joked with her, like, you know what we just did? And she's like, what? I go, we just played D&D. &D. And she's like, no, we didn't. I'm like, yeah, we did. That was D&D. &D. She's like, no, it wasn't. You know, I'm like, yeah, it was. We so, weren't sitting at a table. There were no dice. Right, no dice I don't see know, a character sheet in front of me. So then, you know, at our next session, I said, does, you know, do you want to describe what happened with Berengar? She said, sure. And so she explained to the rest of the group what she had discovered as Berengar, which was nice because it's not me just spouting monologue. You know, mm -hmm. now it's one of the players also spouting monologue. Let um, me give you some flavor text now, group. <laughs> I did a lot of that. Yeah. And I tend to do a lot of that. But, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So that, you know, that was like an experiment in sort of trying it out. The other thing I did is, uh, uh, you know, for both games, I've done a lot more flavor text or not flavor text, flash fiction. I'll, I'll write like a quick 500 word short story that of like things that are going on in the game world that matter to the PCs, but aren't directly tied to the PCs. So like when Strahd sees them kill Baba La Saga, he goes from being amused by these meddlesome adventurers like, hey, these guys are kind of interesting to holy shit, these guys might actually be tough and I better worry about this. And he's like, hey, vampire hordes, go take care of them. So I got to write flash fiction about that. Now, the irony there is like I wrote one for the Wednesday group and yesterday I kind of led into it and realized nobody at the table had bothered to read it. <laughs> and you're like, you know, I'm not going to blame them. Like, you know, the uh, part of what I wrote in the article just before our session, you know, just before our talk was, you know, we uh, it, when we're into it, we have to manage our expectations and recall that I might write 500 words of flavor text and no one else may care. And and that's that's OK. They're all busy like I am. And they might, you know, it, it's it didn't hit the level of triage where they had the time to go and read it. Not because they hate me and not because they don't care, but we're all busy. If it's asynchronous like that, you're playing D&D &D when you're writing the article and coming up with the idea for the flash fiction and then you hit send. And then maybe the players log in two days later to read that flash fiction, and then they're playing D&D at that time. But you're not playing at the same time, which is kind of an interesting dynamic. One of the ideas you offer in the article is thinking about the game away from a session, but through the eyes of the villain. You talk about that a bit uh, with Strahd realizing, whoa, 
this adventuring party might actually be a threat to me. I need to do something about it. How might DMs do this kind of visualizing as the villain between sessions? One of my absolute favorite techniques, and this is when we talk about mindfulness in D&D, uh, mm-hmm. this, is, this is one of the first things that sort of comes to mind. Um, I've always, uh, always, you know, for a long time, I've often thought that a better way of approaching a game than what's going to happen in the next session or how am I going to screw with the PCs or <laughs> what are the next three big encounters they're going to have? You know, you talked about like what are the forks that they're going to take? I always try to say, and the, the Dungeon World has a bit of this, the game Dungeon World. Sure. Uh, Adam Cobell and um, Sage, uh, Sage Latora, uh, fantastic RPG system and some great ideas that we can steal for all sorts of things. We've been using that on our end. I've yeah. been, been a player in a Game of Thrones campaign, yep. the Dungeon yep. World rules, which... Right. So the fronts, the idea of fronts. Yeah, and just kind of the whole narrative aspect of it. Right. It's, it's a lot of fun. Right. Yeah, so the, the idea of instead of saying what are the plot is, who are the three main villains and what are they up to? What, what do they want to do? And, and my favorite is always like, what is the villain doing right now? You know, and to me, like the, the, the question upon which to pontificate is, OK, so all this stuff happened. What's Strahd doing right now? Mm-hmm. You know, and then I think, well, Strahd's not a passive villain. He doesn't sit on his throne and watch things all the time. He likes to get on his nightmare and ride around. He's going to go and he's going to confront Madame Eva go talk to her directly about what's going on. And he's going to go and, and watch these PCs by themselves. You know, both my sessions, Strahd showed up in the first session mm-hmm. to get an eye on these people when they entered Barovia. Cause he's, he's, you know, he's a micromanager. He likes to put his head on things himself. Mm-hmm. So in my head, I'm always like, so what's he doing? Well, he's sitting there, you know, and I love the one where they killed Baba La Saga. Cause she's like of the top three most powerful entities in Barovia and they killed her. And he's like his wine glass full of blood that he's hanging on to. He's forgotten about that. Right. And he's like, oh, my God. Right. Mm -hmm. I got to I got to be careful of these guys. You know, they could come into my castle and kill me. And, you know, or I don't know if he's quite thinking that far, but (laughs) I better pay more attention to these than I have been. He's on notice. They're no longer just play play things. They're no longer just play things. So that getting in that mindset. And, and then what does that equate to, you know, and what that equates to is he says, let the vampire hordes go through Barovia. Let's make life harder for them. And then next session, the PCs are like, where the hell all these vampires come from? Like we fought one or two, but now there's hundred, there's dozens of them. We're fighting because you know vampire hordlings and stuff, real small vampires like ghouls. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the other one is, okay, that's one villain, but what about another villain? You know, one of them, there's a villain in the Amber Temple. In my version, it's a more powerful villain than is in the adventure. You know, what's that person up to mm-hmm. or how did they even get there? You know, so one of the flash fiction was a thousand years ago. How did they show up? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, those are always more fun questions because I don't have to worry about stomping on the decisions that the players are going to make. You know, it's 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 instead sort of building a level of richness and it may only be in my head. Right. Like I might think through the eyes of the villain and figure out what they're going to do next. And I may never write it down and I may never tell anybody and I may never actually it might not directly come up in a game. But in my head, there's this model, you know, of this person. I mean, our, our brain. So now let's let me talk psychology to the psychologist here. Sure. Right? You can confirm. It's exactly what we're here for. I'm totally full of shit. Um <laughs> But our brains are fantastic. So I'm a computer nerd, right? Mm -hmm. And our brains are fantastic simulators, Mm -hmm. fantastic ways to create models for things. Mm -hmm. We can create models for other, and and often I would think that many times the trouble that we have with other human beings is the actual human being and the model we have in our head don't match, (laughs) right? Sure. But 
When it comes to a fictitious person like Strahd, who the hell cares? So my Strahd in my head that I've built a model for is perfect for me. And, and, and it really can be very freeing to allow yourself to brainstorm that way outside your own bounds of like what is socially appropriate for people to do like kind of behavior <laughs> yeah, in, your, right, in the right. eyes of a villain just you can kind of go beyond those boundaries and just be like yeah what would this person be doing right now right and yep. if you just allow yourself to brainstorm it can take it in some really interesting directions mm-hmm. it reminds me of something you wrote this article you wrote about the brain attic yeah attic kind of reminds me of some episodes of Sherlock. Uh, yeah I, I, I think I got it from Sherlock. Yeah which I love the episodes where it just it's a half hour of the show, but it's like five seconds in his brain Yeah, where it just shows like how complex his thought process is. Right. And it sounds like you try to apply that to just preparing or even playing or thinking about mm-hmm. the game. So how does that help you as a, as a DM? It, um, well, yeah. So there's, there, I actually, I think, you know, we, we had talked about it just recently and I went back and reread that article. It is totally talking about ego check. You ready for an ego check? Yeah. And I read that article. I was like, wow, this is a great article. <laughs> now, man, I, I should retweet I, myself. This I, is I'm fantastic. Awesome. I think I probably did. Right. Like, hey, everybody, check out this great thing I wrote. Yeah. But I, I actually did like that article a lot. I think I actually rewrote it. A lot of times I pick an article that I like and I'll, I'll rewrite it and repost it, um, you know, just because it's easier than writing a new article. Sly Flourish, greatest hits. Yeah, right. Yes. You know, yeah. So, so there's a couple things. You know, the, the the idea of Sherlock Holmes as sort of segmentation of our brain. How can we how can we sort of organize thoughts in our head? You know, not rigidly exactly, but just you know, how do we again? How do we sort of keep the right things up front and get the things that aren't helpful out of the way? And I I, I probably take it to an extreme. Like I think that you know, I think that advertisement is brain damage. You know, and I I, I really try hard not to like watch mainstream television because I don't want all that crap in my head. You know, I don't want constant advertisements in my head. Other aspects of my life, I'm sometimes forced to go through these ridiculous exercises of, you know, like corporate training or whatever that are just completely meaningless. And everyone knows they are like every other employee you talk to is like, yeah, it's just worthless. (laughs) And I'm like, the more time I spend thinking about it, the more neurons in my head are connecting in ways I don't want them to connect. So, you know, that's the extreme end, right? The other side of that is how do I fill my head with things that are valuable and useful? And like a little bit more than a year ago, a couple of years ago, I said I made an active sort of like I'm going to read two books simultaneously every day, right? Like I'm going to I'm going to listen to an audio book and I'm going to read a novel and I'm going to take time. And a commute is a great time to listen to an audio book. And, you know, at lunch and before bed are great times for me to read a little bit of a book. You know, I want to I try to read good ones. I try to read ones that are fun. A lot of science fiction, a lot of fantasy. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like that's filling the brain attic, right? That's giving me ideas and subconsciously embedding ideas and, and, and just sort of pouring stuff in mm-hmm. that then will hopefully manifest or may manifest or may help build neurons in the right way to come up with something interesting that 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 players will enjoy. You know, and again, it sort of sounds like heady and egotistical. So right. ego check, and, and maybe, it, maybe it fits ego check pretty well. And um, I wonder how often do you do this sort of thing as a player and not, you know, as a DM preparing a game and running a game session, but how yeah. much do you do that with your own? Just like, hey, I'm a PC, and I'm going to show up to the game. Like, what what's the difference if, yeah, if there is one? For me or in general? For you specifically. So I, I like, again, I kind of suck as a player. 
Um, so I, 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 I really, a, I don't play a lot. Like I, I play pretty much at conventions and that's it. Mm-hmm. So I've got a handful of characters in a file folder and they all have backstory. I, I am, I am, you know, I, I'm the kind of player who, if I'm playing a single player computer game, I'll still have a role in my head about why my character is doing something. <laughs> and, you know, like I played the game Mass Effect, you know, which is a fantastic RPG, yes. you know, science fiction RPG. I remember that in my head I had a, because that, that game, you have this character that evolves through three storylines and all that stuff. game. Yeah. I made a choice in the first game. So, uh, you know, to dig in that game a little bit, there's a scene in the first game where you have to make a choice between two characters to die. Fearmire, I think, is the name of the planet, if yeah. I remember correctly. One, of, one yeah. of them has to stay with a nuclear bomb and one of them doesn't. Yeah. And I remember that I put... Spoiler alert, I didn't... Caden yeah. didn't make it. I think that's his name. Yeah, right. So Caden made it in mine. Oh, okay. Because uh, the woman, I forget her name. I think it was Ashley. She killed one of my other crew members. Okay. And she did it really quickly without <laughs> me telling her to. And I really liked the other guy and I never forgave her for it. <laughs> so when it was her chance to go stay with the nuke, she was the first choice by far. Mm-hmm. She went in and got nuked. And then I remember in the second game, I'm being interviewed by the elusive man and he's asking me why I sent her in. And my character says stuff like, sometimes I have to make a hard choice. And I remember I think like, yeah, but that's not what really happened. Right. right? Like where's the renegade that, option? Like she just needed to go. Gets. Yeah. Right. It was like, no, she let a crew member die. So even in that one, like, you know, no one else is playing this game, but me, but in my head, I have this whole story and I still do it. Like I'm, I'm back in a world of Warcraft and even my little Warcraft character who just picks, you know, 10 things off the ground and hands it to the first person with an exclamation mark over their head. I still have a story for like, you know, like Pandaria, the, the the expansion before last, that was his vacation, right? He got to go and hang out on this beautiful island. And sure, he got to fight some evil spirits. But really, that was him taking a break after Cataclysm, which was this horrendous, stressful event. And, uh, and then he doesn't do well with vacation. So then when they knew big, powerful stuff happened, he you know got into that. So I, I have little head stories for PCs. And I certainly have that for my D&D characters. You know, I have the pirate and how he acts. And I have my dwarf, my war cleric and how he acts and... I wonder how often have you shared that with like flash fiction from a player's point of view? Like, I'm just going to send this out to the group. They might not care, but here's my contribution to what's happening. Yeah. Michelle and I, my my wife and I, we play a lot together when we're playing in someone else's game. And I like to have little stories with her, like why our characters are together and things like that. But I've, I've never actually written flash fiction because I run so many games that almost any amount of energy that I would do in something like that. It's going to go into my, the game I'm running. Uh, I have players who write lots of good backstories. You know, I have many players who are just happy to show up on the, the day and play their character and have a good time. Mm-hmm. And I try to bring their characters out. And then I have some who write, I, I, before this podcast, I was just reading, you know, probably a 1500 word description of the last game that one of the players wrote that included bits of the flash fiction that I wrote, plus new fiction that she wrote. Wow about both her character and about other events that were taking place. And it was fantastic. It's like, holy cow, I got all these hooks I can use. And she really put a lot of work into it. The trickier bit can be that players will sometimes write fiction, write, write big backgrounds of the characters without taking the account of the adventure and without taking into account any of the other PCs. And, and that can be hard. You know, I, I, in the article I write, like if you want to cheat, if you, as a player, if you want to cheat, if you really want to get on the good side of the DM, you will go and ask the DM what kind of hooks you could use in your character's background that tie into the adventure. Because the DM is like, oh, 
it'd be awesome if you did this, you know, or be like, so great if you were tied in this way or that way. And many times I've seen it a lot where before a campaign begins, even if as a DM, you put out just a slight hint about what it's going to be, players are off and running with background and they're off in separate directions. And then the first session, like, why the hell would the five of you ever be together? And no one has a good answer for it because nobody spent the time to try to figure out why these characters would work out. So it's, it's sometimes hard for me to rein everybody in and say, don't think about your character yet. You know, let's start with here's where you're beginning the adventure so you can figure out what led up to there. And here's how you guys are all connected. This brings up something in my mind. There's so many people writing about D&D from the DM perspective, while there seems to be less about how to be a good player. Uh, even, for example, a tutorial on how players can create a background that ties in to the specific campaign setting or connects to the other player characters in the campaign. How much of a need is there for instructional content like this on how to be a better player? Jeff Greiner, who runs the Tome Show, uh, he started a blog because he saw the same thing back in the fourth edition era. Absolutely. Yeah, and he started a blog that was focused on players. Um, there's actually a lot of material written for players. If you look like DMs Guild, there's a lot of character options and stuff that people are putting out there. But there's not a lot about advice for players. I, you know, for me, it's sort of like I always made the assumption that DMs are going to spend time reading the web about D&D. And players are going to show up to the game and play. I don't know if that's still true because now everyone's so heavy on the net already and people are watching so much video of D&D and, and these video, you know, the, 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 the video broadcasts of D&D are so, are so wide. There might be more room for people who are like, you know, I watched Acquisitions Incorporated or I watched you know, Matt, Matt Mercer's game. I'm, I'm kind of curious about how to be a better player in a D&D game and no one's necessarily catering to that. The hard part, like it's it's not it's not something I could do again because I'm not a you know I'm a terrible player and I don't play enough right. It's not something I have experience in. Where DMing, I run more than a hundred games a year. I can at least talk to that. Playing, so, I play like six. So right, yeah. yeah, and definitely when you were talking earlier about like running games gives you fuel for the articles that you write. And I was the same way, you know, for a couple of years I moved and wasn't playing as much. So I wasn't writing as much because I didn't have as much content to really generate articles from. But now that I'm playing games again, I'm <laughs> writing more often and playing the games. It gives me a good perspective because I'm, you know, I'm there as a player, but I'm also thinking about DMs doing and why they're yeah, doing it. Right. And that's just it's interesting to come at it from both angles, mm -hmm. certainly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in general, as we start to you know wind down here, I wonder over the years, been involved in D&D as a fan and certainly involved as a kind of a freelancer. Mm -hmm. what, what have you noticed about the kind of the tabletop or just gaming industry for better or for worse over the last five years? Like how are things changing? Mm -hmm. I have, so I'll, I'll, hit, I'll hit two, uh, okay. a, better, a better and a worse. Okay. I will start with the worse so that okay. we'll, we'll be positive at the end. Just get that out of the way. Yeah. yeah well, in that way, the, the, you know, I'm keeping in mind the curve of happiness. I think that a lot of different groups are trying new business models out. Mm -hmm. And some of those business models, ex exploitive is probably too strong a word. God, how's the best way to say it? So I'll, I'll say it in a couple of ways. One is there are still groups that think there's a gatekeeper for making stuff in this hobby. And there isn't. 
but many people may still be trying to seek approval from people before they decide that something is a good idea. And I've, and I've seen the gatekeepers are more than happy to continue to be gatekeepers. But I'm reminded of the scene from Blazing Saddles where the horde of, uh, of uh, brigands is riding towards the town and they stuck a toll booth up in the middle of the desert and there's nothing on either side for miles. Sure. And everybody says, you know, what the hell is this? You know, who put this toll booth here? Like someone's going to have to go back and get a barrel of dimes, right? And then it like clips away and it clips back and each of them are feeding a dime and going through the toll booth. And the irony is, of course, they could just ride right around it. That's happening in the gaming industry too. People, I, I worry, I don't know if this is true. And I, I, you know, I'm a big data nerd and I like to have statistics and data before I, you know, before I judge that something I'm, is I'm right there with you. Yeah. But I worry that people who want to write D&D stuff or write adventures or write whatever, feel like they need someone else's approval to do it, whether it's acknowledgement by Wizards of the Coast or whether it's some other group that decides, oh, you're good enough to write for us, so we'll bring you in. When the reality is sometimes those groups aren't any better than anyone else, and sometimes the stuff they produce isn't better than anything that anybody else could produce. I, I said Watsi, so I'll say that they produce awesome stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are many other groups who are like, oh, if only I could get them to recognize me, then I could get what they have. And it's like when you've done it, you, it may not be as good as you think. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you shouldn't let in my opinion, you know, we, we shouldn't let them decide whether or not we're going to make something. Well, and it's interesting because it seems like and not to throw words into your mouth, but that you've kind of bit you've you've taken that journey where you were more of a, a player, a fan of a product got more involved and then you were writing for mm -hmm. for you know several companies. I wonder you said it's kind of hard to be in both worlds. Does that leave you somewhat like disillusioned? Is is it a different word that maybe Yeah. I mean it's not like it totally sucks in the freelance world, right? I mean it's great like being able to work with guys. Like I got I have a document sitting on this hard drive that was like heavily edited by by Kim Mohan and Wolfgang Bauer. You know, I got personal feedback from Wolfgang Bauer on an adventure that needed a lot of work, right? Mm -hmm. The ego in me was like, oh, God, you know, Wolfgang Bauer took his thumb and crushed me down. Under. <laughs> but the other side is, oh, my God, right? Like the amount of value I can get from that is outstanding. That's great. You know, that kind of work is great. You know, um, I, I wrote something for, uh, for Pell Game Press for uh, 13th Age. Rob Hainso, the, the guy who made 13th Age, one of the designers behind 4th Edition, fantastic guy, really nice guy. Yeah. And, you know, we spent an hour on a Skype call talking about this article that I wrote for him. And he really pushed me. He was like, yeah, that's not really pretty fantastic enough, is it? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I guess not. You know, and he's like, yeah. Whatever yeah, you we, say, sir. <laughs> right. We could do more with that, couldn't we? I'm like, yeah. And he really pushed me. Right. And that's fantastic. You know, it's awesome. It hurts. You know, but it's great. So that that stuff is is outstanding. Uh, I've also had times where I worked with people, and they the the input I got was not great, and not and you know I, I'm I felt like I was lucky enough. So this gets to the bad part. I still haven't gotten to the good part yet. We'll get there. Good. Yeah, but the bad part was I've worked with people, and luckily I had enough experience working with titans in the industry to recognize when the input I was getting is not good, and that it wasn't my fault. Right, mm -hmm. like. Sometimes the editor isn't always right. We like to always think they are, and you should always default to they're right. Sometimes they're not, you know? And you have to be a bit of and, your own advocate. Right. And that's why, like, when I get to work with guys like Scott Gray and, and Chris Sims, I'm, I'm name dropping like crazy. But, you know, 
when it's I get ego to check after a while, it so is ego check. Sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm super, super lucky to, to be able to work with them. You know, oh my God, it's fans just so great. And, but, and, and, and because I get to work with them and because I get, you know, the back and forth, I can look at it and go, yeah, this other stuff I'm getting, not, not, not helpful. Right. And it's not me. It's not, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that everything I've ever put out is outstanding, but I can tell when the kind of feedback I'm getting or the, 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 the result of something that I did was for the worse and not for the better. And we learn from that. The, what I worry about is people that start for the first time. And feel like they need these people to, you know, these people, that they need people's approval to do it. And they pick the wrong group. And those people say, yeah, you really did a terrible job with this. Or they get their product back out and they look at it and go, this wasn't what I wrote at all. And now the feedback was all terrible. I'm never going to do this again. You know, like this thing that I love that I poured all this energy into and worked really hard on and, and skipped all this other stuff in my life to do came out and it was mediocre. And now my name is attached to it forever. And it wasn't, you know, and they're not going to recognize that it wasn't their fault. Yeah. I worry about that. And there's, you know, there's areas in the, his, in, in the industry where that, because this whole thing is so malleable and so changing all the time, the business threads are changing and the, the way payment is coming is changing. I think it's as people who write in it, it's not about the money, but it's, it's about being properly compensated for the energy that we're putting into this stuff. And if someone else isn't willing to put their own money towards something, they're probably not worthy of your time because you can always go and write something yourself and you can always put it up there and you can go and hire your own editors and you go and hire your own artists. And it's hard ass work. I can tell you, you know, two years it took me to do fantastic locations and I'm still not done. You know, I mean, the book's out, but I got more to do. It was a pain. It was really hard, but I did get to put something out and I didn't have to ask anyone else's permission to do it other than people who bought it and backed the Kickstarter. Yeah, and it somewhat off topic, but it reminds me of this thread that was going on, uh, not necessarily in D and D, but I think in just kind of overall geek culture of this idea of is fandom broken, uh, and I think it related to like some Avengers movie or some kind of feedback that was going on, that like fandom is in a negative way kind of destroying the hobbies that they love. It was like this article mm. that was online, and then a bunch of people responded to it. It became one of those internet things for like a week or two. But to me, it seems to go look it's, for. It. Yeah, it seems like, especially in role playing games, there's so many options right now. Like, yeah. there's so many games. Like before, when I used to think of role playing games, it was like, well, D and D or Pathfinder. Right. And now there's so many options. Yep. There's and people. There's great options. There's and granted, I think there's it, the, the names behind it. Like Monte Cook could say, "I have an idea." And, Mm-hmm. people are going to throw him like $200,000. Mm-hmm. But that's great that that exists as an option. Right. And even for somebody like myself, you know, I started writing my blog in 2011 as just some guy that, you know, played games. And that got attention to the point where I was interviewing Mike Merles and Monte mm-hmm. Cook. And mm-hmm. I'm still surprised that that happened. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not. I, I can't believe they, <laughs> I, I've always approached it like, well, they can always say no. And I still write the blog that way. And, you know, I have some things going on now that I'm excited about that hopefully come out in the future. So I think it is, there's a lot of opportunity out there for people Mm -hmm. that want to take charge of it. But it does, again, circle William back to time management and mindfulness. It depends how you want to spend your time. Do you Mm want to kind of grind out, edit, put out good material and hope Mm -hmm. it gets some traction Mm -hmm. or 
kind of wait for those gatekeepers to bless you. Like, yeah. yes, this I, is good work. Yeah. I, 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 so, you know, I, I have strong opinions about a lot of stuff, but I always try to recognize that everyone needs to kind of make their own choices and, and we should just learn from each other's experiences and that should guide us. Right. Mm-hmm. But a boy, I feel really strongly against the gatekeeper idea. You know, I think anybody that says like, look, one day wizards of the coast will acknowledge me. You're, you're, most of the time you're going to ask for a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I think it, and I think it's a, crutch i think it's like well if they don't then i didn't really have to do all the work anyway when the reality is like you know if you if you want to write something go write it (laughs) you know no one no one has to wait and and even if you you know like you brought up all the game systems and stuff and i've had a philosophy uh that every every everybody in this hobby has their own game system that's sitting on their hard drive somewhere that they wrote because they've got one that they (laughs) love and i have Mm -hmm. one right i wrote dungeons of fate which was my sort of love letter to the game I wanted, you know, and I even wrote a whole new version of it that no one has seen. Cause I'm like, I don't know why anybody would give a shit. Right. Because there's so many good systems. Do we really need another system? But even still yeah. go ahead and do it. Right. Like, so, yeah. so why what? Not? It's a lot of great video games, but you find a way to play them. You know, yeah. I mean, probably later. Yeah. So, so probably one of the, you know, I'm going to say mistake, so through another friend of mine who's not in the industry, or not in the industry, not a big RPG guy, right, but knows what I've done, was at a dinner party with some friends, and they said, oh, my son is writing an RPG. You know, they wrote a system. And he's like, oh, he should get in touch with, you know, I know a guy at work who does all this kind of stuff and wanted to get in touch. So we got in touch and we emailed. They sent me, so I, I emailed them and said, hey, you know, hello, we introduced their friends, and, and I, I hear you have a thing. And they're like, oh, we'd love you to take a look. And I said, I'd be happy to. And they sent me uh, the, 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 the PDF of the product they put together. And it was a uh, D20-based science fiction system wired completely around Mass Effect, getting back to Mass Effect. And the IP, the IP for Mass Effect was all over it. And it was like 200 pages. Wow. And, and it was, the, the layout was gorgeous, right? Like the, the, the editing was great. The, the system from my read through looks solid. Everything was great, right? But it's totally illegal. <laughs> and, and I wrote to him and I'm like, this is outstanding, but you've got a problem. You know, the, the problem that I see is the success of your product is inversely proportional to the likelihood of you getting sued. The more popular it is, the harder it's going to be for you, mm-hmm. right? Where if you could write a gen- general science fiction RPG based on the same thing that maybe stole all kinds of ideas from Mass Effect but wasn't Mass Effect, y- y- the, the sky's your limit. Mm-hmm. But right now, your limit is, is you know losing every dime you ever earn in a lawsuit plus all of your time and energy yeah. and everything else. You know. But even then, I was like, I was still applauded it because like this is pretty good, you know. Like the work, yeah. and I, I said, like your graphic design is fantastic, way better than I could do, and you know, and it, it looks really solid. And and they and I emailed and told them that, and they're like, yeah, we really like it. And we're just gonna kind of make it for free and hope we don't get sued. It's like, <laughs> all right, good luck, good luck, you know. <laughs> Wish you the best. So so circling around, kind of spent some time on maybe the not so great thing. Yeah, uh, the development over time with. Uh, imaginary gatekeepers what's what's been a positive change in the last five years or so um so i, I this this is kind of hitting me in the latin even in in not just five years but sort of the last year and not to self-promote again but i wrote a, an article on sly flourish about this mike merles wrote a whole series of tweets about this that kind of just like when monty cook wrote about the other thing and i was like oh i kind of made my head explode with ideas 
Merles was talking about the new value of having live play D&D sessions all over the net and how we now have you know, something that we've never had before, which is what D&D looks like. So that people who want to get into D&D, but they're like, I really don't know what this is. And I read the books and I still don't know what it is. Can just go and watch about a million videos that show five people sitting around a table having fun. And they're diverse. They have, you know, good, good mixes of people and good different styles. And it looks fun. And it looks fun. And people are laughing. They're having a good time. Yeah. The arguments I've heard against it are, you know, yeah, but no normal game looks like that. But when I look at Chris... And, and maybe my, you know, I, I seriously doubt my game and I've played in many, many games beyond just the games I've run. And, you know, not everybody can be Chris Perkins. But if you look at the Acquisitions Incorporated series, for example, that's a pretty normal looking D&D game. Like they're all smart. and They're all funny and they're all having a good time. But it's not the stage event that they're doing at PAX. Like that's a bad example of what a D&D game looks like because there's like a million dollars worth of effort that went into right. making sure that game is great. And I even wrote an article a couple of years ago. I'm like, are they yeah, playing right. D&D? Right. I don't know right. if they're even right. following right. the rules. It's Well, so here's the interesting thing. They're still not following the rules. Well, yeah, sure. Michelle and, you know, Michelle and I watch it over breakfast. Like you know, every day before we go to work, we have breakfast and we sit and we watch Acquisitions Incorporated. And we're both like, God, they're doing critical hits totally wrong. Right. And even this morning, Michelle said, like, like one of the players said, like, is this how it works? And Chris Burke said, yeah. And Michelle's like, no, it's not. You know, right. like, that's not how it works. And, and, we're, the, so we're and it's nice to see that you don't have to be a rules expert. Right. You don't have to yes. memorize a 300-page manual. Right. You just right. sit down and play. And my only, my only worry about it is if people are looking at that beyond – like, I think they should look at it as a great example of what does the game look and feel like. Mm-hmm. That isn't a substitution for reading the rule book and understanding what the rules are because you shouldn't break them until you know them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on the other hand, people play D&D with a 12-sided die because they didn't have a 20. So whatever, you know, whatever makes a game great is, is great. Right. The worry is if somebody – and I've seen it where they're like, well – and I had somebody. We were having a big argument about Counterspell on Twitter. And somebody said, well, Chris Perkins wrote this thing about Counterspell over here. And I'm like, yeah, but Jeremy Crawford wrote this thing. And he's actually the rules guy and it's in the errata. So – I get that Perkins did it that way, but he's Perkins. He gets to do that. Yeah. This is what the rule book says. The good side of it is like there's so much more activity in that. And and the other part of it is it's really opening up to an entirely different audience now. Uh, and I do have data on this. Like I, I one of the one of my fun side projects is I've been running a Twitter uh, listener for about uh, 18 months now that picks up any tweet that's tagged with the D&D hashtag. And I've been storing it in a huge database and I've been running all kinds of computer stuff on top of it. And I just recently ran a, um, I've heard it referred to as a knowledge graph, which is kind of a potentious term, like a network graph where it shows like- Did you post an image of that? I think I saw it a few, like last week or so. Yeah, I actually made a new one this morning that shows it by community. So it shows you who's connected to who. What's really interesting is beyond sort of getting like who's the top tweeter and who's the person most retweeted and what, you know, one of the things I've got is like a little time series that shows how often someone tweets. So you can see who the new people are, like new popular people. But this one shows here are all the people that retweeted these different groups. What I'm finding is interesting is there's a, a there's two or three. There's one in particular, uh, uh, the Encounter Roleplay uh, Twitch channel. And I was recently on there. He, he, the, the, the fellow that runs it invited me to, to go on the Twitch channel. And I'm kind of like the old guy wandering like, what's what are you? Yeah, what are you kids doing in here? Right. right? And so what, what blew me away and what just impressed the hell out of me is 
I play, and as you mentioned, like I track all my crap, so I can tell you exactly how many games I play in a year. I play over 100 games a year. I play about seven hours of D&D a week. And I consider that to be, yeah, right. I'm like, ah, that's pretty good. This guy plays 160 hours a month. Wow. Yeah, he's playing D&D full time, right? 40 hours a week of D&D. That's amazing. Yes, all online, all in Roll20, all with players that he plays with. And I'm like, oh my God, that guy has so much more experience than I do running D&D. Like, mm-hmm. I need to be asking him questions, right? Because He I, should be writing articles. <laughs> he should be, he doesn't. He runs a Twitch channel. And, yeah. and when I look at it, he now gets more retweets. In the past week, he got more retweets than Wizards of the Coast, mm. right? So, and, 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 and then through my graph, I was able to look and the people retweeting him are not people that retweet Wizards of the Coast. It's a whole different group. So he's got a reach that's beyond the echo chamber. Like when I, when I show my big map, I've got this big circle and like you and I are in there and my, my friend Teo Sabadia is in there and sure. newbie DMs in there and all these people that we know and love and, and have been following for many years. They're all in this big mash in the center, this giant mm-hmm. un, unfathomable mash of people retweeting everybody else and talking to everybody else. And then you look at the outside and there's these new, what I consider to be kind of new folks who are, have this reach that's way outside of the center group. And Wizards of the Coast, of course, we would expect to have that. Like, they've got 20,000 followers. So the fact that half of their followers are not part of the echo chamber, not a big surprise. But then when you have fellows, you know, fellows like this who are running a Twitch channel that they're running it full-time and people are watching it a lot. I mean, when I was on his show, there were 60 people live just hanging out and chatting. And they're all regulars. They know him and they know the group and they're, they're all having a good time. And I'm like the outsider. I don't know who the hell these people are. Yeah. But I was like, wow. A, as you know, the self-marketing guy, I was like, this is great because I got exposure right. to a whole bunch of people that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other part is like there's all new groups that are getting involved. There was an article on Vice magazine, Vice, the, I guess, the online site, where they were talking about Stranger Things. And the guy said that. You know, Stranger Things has this big tie to D&D. In fact, the first conversation and the last conversation in the series are about D&D. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, like finally my hot just my mom watched it. She's like, hey, they're playing D&D. Well, and it seems like there's such an opportunity and for D&D role playing games, just gaming in general to get out of that perceived bubble that Mm -hmm. it's been in where it's like, you know, guys in their basements playing games and like, no, it's everybody. Yeah, and I think people are starting to realize that, yep. and it's more of a mainstream thing with esports and, yep. Yep. you know, right. the fact that D and D's going to be in a movie theater. I yep. think within the next yeah. week, right? It's definitely a growing. <laughs> Can you imagine that? People are going to go to a movie theater to watch people play D and D. It's not a D and D movie. They're going to watch four people sitting around a table playing D and D for three hours in a movie theater. Yeah, That's, and they're going to love I, it. And I would totally be there if I could, but I'm going to be on vacation. I'm gonna yeah, be, I'll be out. I'll be on vacation cap. as well. Yeah. Uh, turn Well, it'll be a few days after I turn 40, so that dates me. Ah, really? Bit, but oh, congratulations. Yes. So as we wind down here, I, I very much appreciate your time. I wonder, uh, plug a few things. How can people find you online and buy your stuff? Uh, so uh, my website is slyflourish.com. Uh, named after the uh, one of the moves in D and D Fourth Edition, and I'm 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 hoping nobody remembers that, and they just you know Sly Flourish is now totally branded to this. Hey, I loved my Dragonborn Rogue in Fourth Edition. <laughs> yeah, right. I, it's actually a move in D and D Online or the Neverwinter game. There's still somebody that has a move called Sly Flourish. So SlyFlourish.com is my website, and my Twitter handle is Twitter.com/slash/slyflourish. That's where I'm most. Those are the two channels where I'm most active. Uh, new articles every week. Uh, new D and D tips every day. 
my uh, the book I want to plug the most is Fantas- Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations. Uh, it was a it was backed by about 750 people on Kickstarter. Congratulations! Was, yeah, you know I was totally humbled by the amount of of um, you know the amount of support that it got between myself and Scott Fitzgerald Gray and Brian Patterson and Eric Nowak, where the the four of us put it together. It I, it came out and it's outstanding. I'm, I'm I couldn't be happier with it. It's if I die today, you know <laughs> that could be placed on my pyre, and I'm happy. You know, I've, 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 I've made something that I really, really, it's the, it's the so biggest. Briefly project. what's in fantastic locations. I, I mean, talk about how happy I'm about it. I the title about. seems to be, <laughs> guess what? Yeah. Pretty accurate. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the design of it is that there's 20 locations in the book. Uh, they are designed with a, a, a good mix of flexibility so that you can kind of bend them to your will as a DM. Um, they, some of them have maps, but many of them do not. And in, instead the intent is you can grab whatever three rooms you like and only run those three. It's about, you know, each location has about nine to 12 places, smaller, you know, you could think of them like a set piece for a battle, or you could think of them like a place they could explore. They're all pretty flavor rich, but they don't have any plot assigned to them. So the intent is that, uh, you can put your own monsters there, put your own story there you know, drag and drop it into your game wherever you see it fit. Make it whatever you want it to be. Whether you just need three rooms, you just pick the three rooms you want. Um, there's art by Brian Patterson. He's the guy that does the D20 Monkey website and the and the comic strip. And he did some absolutely beautiful art for the book. Uh, the intent is really to, like, give a toolbox to DMs to make their lives easier when it comes to places. Because in my in my opinion... Of all of the things we can kind of improvise at the table, a good, solid, realistic, fantastic place that's memorable and interesting and has, you know, good nooks and crannies uh, that that you can't just whip out of your ass. You know, that's something that needs a little time. So my goal was here's 20 of them ready to go. Stick it. Yeah. Stick it in your book and, you know, stick them in your in your go bag and pull them out when you need one. And I've used them that way and they've they've worked for me and, and the feedback on it has been really good. 